We're going to do our declaration together, and I'm going to let you be seated for the reading of the word. It's rather lengthy this morning. Let's do this together, and let's do it like we mean it. Amen? Here we go. Lord, today by faith, we declare that we are walking in the manifestation season. As your faithful remnant, we will house your very presence. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he has delivered us from all of our troubles and fears. We are no longer victims, but we are victors in Christ. We will not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, but we will give health, healing, and wholeness to the hopeless and those in despair. We will live under your anointing and see the revealed purpose of Christ in each of our lives. We declare your everlasting word on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. Give the Lord praise this morning. Today we read, you can be seated, yes, from Mark 5, Mark 5, 22 through 43, and this is what it says. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue of Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. And when she had heard of Jesus came in the press behind him and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the foundation of her blood was dried up. The fountain, excuse me, of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her, that he had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith had made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou thy master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? Thy damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and said them that were there with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he looked, took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was the age of 12 years old, and they were astonished with a great 
astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given to her to eat. Let us pray. Lord, we pray you would speak to our fathers once again this morning, that you would use our pastor to bring the word of the Lord to us, that we would open our hearts, Lord, to hear what you have to say, Lord, to build us up, to make us better, Lord. We need you to be the fathers you've called us to be, not just to our kids, but to our communities and to this nation. We give you praise for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's good to see everybody here today. And I was sitting here thinking at the beginning of the service when they had, you never know what Brooks and them was going to do on Father's Day right before the service. And I thought, now what's going on today? And then, you know, it must be a pretty bad steak for someone to eat steak and say ham. <laughs> I, I don't know what he put into, uh, you know, that must have been a cheap steak or that was probably a three or four year old steak that he ate uh, three or four days ago and he cut a little bit off the bone to give it to these guys. I don't know. But uh, I, I tell you, if they want a good someone to taste something, they already got me. I could have, man, I could have won that. I could have got that prize. Good to see everybody here on this Father's Day. Can I have an amen? So great to be in the house of the Lord. We're going to get right into the word of the Lord because I do believe the Lord has given me a message for you guys today. And I hope it's encouraging. I hope it's uplifting. And I hope that the Lord blesses you. We're believing that. We've been praying for that over this service. But, you know, as you all know, this is Father's Day, and this is the day that we do honor our fathers. I would like one more time, I know you've been kind of up and down like popcorn, with all of the fathers stand, please, if you're a father. Amen? Man, would you give all these guys a great big hand of appreciation. Look at this. It's beautiful. Amen. We got some of the greatest male leaders that there is in any church. You may be seated. You know, so many churches don't even have men whatsoever in the church, and we've got so many great, not only uh, fathers, but great men that are sitting out there that are wonderful spiritual people that know how to guide and to lead the church and to lead their homes and to lead their families. But it's interesting how the Father's Day actually began. I got a lesson on this myself this week. In 1910, there was a little lady by the name of Sonora Dodd in, in Spokane, Washington. She was sitting in a church service on Mother's Day and she was listening to the sermon, the Mother's Day sermon actually, and she thought about her father who was sitting right by her side. Her father was a Civil War veteran and her mother had died early in her life. So for all the years of her life and most of the years of her siblings' life, it was her father that raised them up. He was a very devout and a very godly Christian man. She thought it would be a wonderful thing to have a special time to honor the father as they did the mothers that day. And she really wanted it somehow to not only honor him, but to create something that would honor all of the fathers around the nation. Due to him being born in the month of June that year, she was able to have a special day honoring her father on the third Sunday of June in 1910 there in Spokane, Washington. Many years later, actually 56 years later, in 1966, it was President Lyndon Johnson who signed the proclamation declaring that the third Sunday in June would be set aside for Father's Day. It would be a day when we would recognize and honor and pay tribute to our earthly fathers and 
also slash our heavenly father. And this was all inspired by this little bitty woman in Spokane, Washington. When President Johnson heard of the story, he was so moved, and then he began to make this proclamation for Father's Day. I have said this in recent sermons, and I sure don't want to be repetitious, but I believe it is worth to bring to our attention again and bring back to our remembrance. I won't stay here long, but usually the pattern of the most churches in America is to exalt or to praise motherhood on Mother's Day, and we honor our mothers, and we love them, and we shower them, and well, we should, because they're virtuous women, but we end up beating up and criticizing fathers on Father's Day. That seems like the trend around America for the last several years. It never ceases to amaze me how whenever there is a male function of some sort in the church, people look for ways to remind all of the men of their shortcomings and their failures. And sadly, I'd have to admit that we preachers have been no exception because usually we we join the trend by chewing the dads out on Father's Day, sending some kind of a message to them about how that they've never spend enough time with their family. They never spend enough time with their kids. They're spiritual deadbeats. They don't pray enough and they don't do this enough and they don't do that enough. And for years, this is what seems to be the trend throughout America. And then the church wonders why that male church attendance is down all over the across America while more women are in the church than men. All across America, there is a trend to this day to attack fathers. In the way of honor, it used to be the Andy Griffin Show where a single father raises his son up in the values of honesty and integrity and discipline and morality and this man was looked at as a man of honor. Then there were shows like Leave It to Beaver and I'm telling my age a little bit, ain't I? And also sons like Fathers Know Best. How many knows them, them movies or them shows? Many of you do because of your age. But this is where the dad was portrayed as the leadership of the home, a place to run to in a time of trouble, a place to go get advice. This man, he always represented on these shows uh, the, the authority of a man. He had the final word. And he was a man that portray, was portrayed with wisdom. You wanted to go to dad for the hard stuff. Uh, but now in America society and on sitcoms and on TV series, men are portrayed as stupid and ignorant and dumb and they're belittled and they're put down and they're laughed at. And without getting, me getting on my pet peeve, because that's my pet peeve here today, men are being attacked and there's an attempt to disqualify the male leadership of the home. The enemy is trying to strip man of his authority and his dominion because of the importance that the Bible puts on the role of men and his fathers within the scripture. Can I tell every man here, you have authority, you have power, and you have dominions that you were created with by God himself. Can I have an amen? The little, there was a little girl that asked the father, he said, she said, Daddy, you're the boss, aren't you? Her daddy smiled, being pleased at her question. Well, I said, why, yes. And the little girl continued, that's because mama put you in charge, right? I got to thinking about that. Man, we got to bind together, don't we? Because they're teaching them fast. Hallelujah. But as I look over this congregation today, I see all ages of men, both young and old. I see all sizes of men, big and small. I see all races of men, black, white, Hispanic, and so on. And let me stop right here and say and assure you that you are not going to get beat up here today. I am not here to beat you up. I'm here to exalt you and edify you and lift you up and praise you for who you are. You are marvelously and wonderfully, uniquely created by God and God don't make junk. Can I have an amen? Give our fathers another hand of appreciation. Amen.
There's nothing more important on, on God's green earth than fatherhood and male leadership. Nothing can take the place of you men when you're absent. Nothing can compare to the power of manhood, leading his family, leading his children, leading his home, and yes, leading in the church. Look what happens when male presence is absent. 90% of homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 71% of pregnant teenagers lack a father. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 90% of adolescent repeat arsonists come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of adolescent patients and chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions have no father. 85% of youth that is in prison grew up in a fatherless home. I could go pages after pages after pages Ages, and all of those statistics are high where there, is, uh, where there is no father in the home. Some of you men did not stand when I asked for fathers to stand earlier in the service because you are not a biological father. But many of you are fathers more than what you think. And I'm not saying that somebody's going to be knocking on your door and saying, surprise, I'm your son or your daughter that you never knew that you had. I'm not saying that. But there are many fathers that have never had biological, biological, biological children, but I'll get that out in a minute, but they have fathered children. Can I have an amen? My dad was such a man. He fathered a multitude even though he only had four biological sons. At his funeral, men from 40 years old to 65 years old came up to me crying and telling me stories how that my dad was a father role and a father figure in their lives. Some of them were saying he helped me through school. He paid my, my lunches every day. He, he gave us clothing and he uh, took us hunting and fishing and poured in life. He helped me get my first car. On and on and on I heard stories about how my father fathered other children besides his own. Yet the devil has even fathered children because the Bible Bible says what? He is the father of all lies. His, he fathers children by making them become like himself through his example and his influence and through the power of his deception and through the power of his destruction. Our leadership is either good or bad, but if you're a man, you're a leader, whether you know or not, you were born and created by God to be a leader. you just got to know what you're leading. There was a little boy that one time received an F on one of his papers from school. And the paper that he was to write was about who is your hero? Who is your influence? And who do you want to be like? Who has inspired your life? And he chose his daddy. And when he got done with writing the paper, when the paper came back to him, it had a big F on it, real huge. And down at those footmarks, it had this. It said spelling, great, grammar, superb, neatness, excellent. And then it just keeps listing all these different things and gives him high ratings. But then when it come to a certain thing, it said the subject matter F. And the teacher said, I had your daddy in school and I know who your daddy is today. And if you keep following your dad that the way, who he is now, you'll always receive an F in life because you'll always be a failure. 
And I thought, oh my goodness, what kind of a teacher would do that? But then it revealed the subject matter. The little boy was saying, my daddy can beat up everybody because he fights all the time. My daddy can handle beer better than any other person. My daddy, he's a good gambler. My daddy, and he was all these bad traits. And this teacher was trying to teach him a lesson. And I want you to know, you're a leader whether you know what you're leading or not if you're a man. I heard about a little girl who walked out of church service when it was over and she said to the pastor, she said, when I grow up, I'm gonna give you some money. The pastor said, well, thank you, dear, but why? She said, because my dad said you're the poorest preacher that we've ever had. <laughs> Amen. You gotta watch what you're saying. You gotta watch what kind of influence that you have. Another little boy was sitting by his dad in church and they were taking up the offering. I thought this was cute and he said, dad, don't worry about it. When it comes to you, you don't have to pay for me. I'm under five. I want you to know sometimes we gotta teach our children whatever things about in this thing called spiritual matters. Can I have an amen? Fathers are not only needed for the physical act of conceiving a child, they are also needed for the spiritual act of raising their children. Let's look at this man Jarius just for a minute. Let us see if there's anything that we can actually learn of this man's life. I've kind of amazed myself of where we're at today. The Bible really doesn't really tell us much about this man. I preached on Jarius on Father's Day seven years ago and I was astonished how that God had shown me at that time something new that I'd never seen in 30 years of ministry. I read over that chapter and the Lord began to just kept prodding me and prodding me to it and finally it began to develop and it began to, I thought, God, I have never seen all this stuff. I would have never thought that I would have used Jarius as an example of a father on Father's Day. And now I am really blown away because God likes to show off. Here I am seven years later preaching on Jarius again because God has given me another revelation. I thought everything that I could have seen in those scriptures, I would have surely seen them seven years ago because I studied them line by line, word by word. But all of a sudden, when you think you know it all, God out of nowhere, he just boom, gives you a new revelation. I want to tell you the word of God is rich. Can I have an amen? And so I'm standing here blown away of what God has shown me. So I come to you today with a different angle, a different approach to this story. There's only three things that is revealed to us about this man by the name of Jarius. Some call him Jarius and others call him a few other things, but them are the two main ways that is pronounced, Jarius and Jarius. You can say it either way you want. I'll probably be using both of them throughout this sermon. But it, here he, we notice that Jarius or, or, or Jarius was a ruler of the synagogue, verse 22. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius by name, and when he saw, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now this tells us that he oversaw the daily operations of the synagogue. He arranged the services. He done the custodian duties. He made provision for the services. He actually set the agenda and he planned the events. He chose who would read the scripture. He chose who would speak. Actually, you might say in many cases, this man like, like uh, would be representative like some pastors is today in smaller congregations where they have to do everything. This is the kind of man that this man was. Was. Number two, the second thing we know about him was that we know that he was a father. He had a daughter according to verse 23. And he besought Jesus greatly saying, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. Now here we see that not only did he have a daughter, but he had a crisis on his hands. How many of you have ever had a crisis on your hands? Of course, we all face crises. It rains upon the just and the unjust alike. We're not exempt from 
the storms of life. But here's Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. He's a very, uh, a, 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 a very uh, famous man. He's got a great reputation in the community. He's a very popular man. He's a very highly esteemed man. And here he is. He's got a dilemma. He comes to Jesus because he's got a daughter in crisis. His daughter was at the point of death, according to the scripture. She either had a sickness, a disease, or injury, or something that was life-threatening. We don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't tell us what it is. But it is here due to the crisis that Jairus is willing to risk everything that he ever had in his life. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to risk everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that you've worked for, for your daughter or for your son's life? Well, that's what this man was willing to do. You have to realize that there was much talk about this man called Jesus in the religious community in and around the synagogue, both good and both bad. Some liked him, some hated him. Some thought he was a blasphemer. Some thought he was an angel. Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was a teacher. Very few of them recognized him as the son of God. But a matter of fact, there's no doubt that Jesus spoke in the synagogue at Capernaum on different occasions. And many times around about the synagogue, Jesus ministered to people. He healed a lot of people around that area. And it is, it is here that we see that Jairus come to know him. It was because of Jesus' fame that energized that whole community. He had watched, he had observed, he had, he had heard, and then he heard all the rumblings that put place in the synagogue because the religious leaders surrounding the synagogue itself actually despised Jesus. The Pharisees, who was the religious group, accused him. The Sadducees, who were the political group, they challenged him. The scribes, who were the doctors of the law, they disputed him. And these religious groups were actually Jairus's friends. Realize that. They were his colleagues. They were his partners. He worked with them. They done ministry together. Every single day they worked side by side one with another. Jairus was highly esteemed and respected among these people. And Jairus knew what his peers and his friends thought of this man called Jesus. He knew, he knew how the, those around the synagogue had felt about him. He knew the opinions of the Sadducees and he certainly knew the opinions of the Pharisees and the scribes. Yet the next thing we see Jairus doing was rejecting and going against everything his peers, his friends, and his colleagues thought about this man called Jesus. They may have criticized him. They rejected him. They blackguarded him. They talked evil of him. They plotted against him. They planned against him. Jairus knew all of this, and yet we see in verse 22 that Jairus comes and he falls at this man Jesus' feet. Verse 23, we find that he besought him greatly to come to his house, lay hands on his daughter so that she could be healed. I'm going to kind of mess up my sermon right here. He don't only come and fall down and ask him to come, but he believed that this man Jesus could heal his daughter. Oh, if I could have some men of belief here today. If I could have some men that would boldly stand up and say Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I have somebody declare to Day, that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and there is no God besides him. He is the supreme one. He is the preeminent one. He is the soon coming king. Can I have an amen? Give the Lord praise in the house. Come on, put your hands together. And he come and the Bible says he besought Jesus. Look it up. In its original form, the Greek word, 
means to ask urgently, <coughs> to ask fervently with hot passion. <coughs> Can I have some water? <coughs> Thank you. <coughs> Kind of hard to drink out of a microphone. <laughs> but the word besought means to ask urgently, to ask fervently with hot passion to beseech, to beg someone earnestly, to desperately ask someone to do something. So Jarius was desperate. Here he is begging, he's beseeching. He's down on his hands and knees and he's urgently asking the Lord, I'm desperate here, would you come to my house? He was so desperate that he was willing to look past the opinions and the influences of his colleagues and his friends to seek Jesus for the healing of his daughter. Now his daughter was more important to him than his friends. How do I know that? Because he loved his daughter more than loving his job, his career, because, and his fame because his actions of coming and falling before the feet of Jesus probably cost him his job and his reputation. He probably got booted out of the synagogue. No doubt about that. He was willing to put his daughter first above his job, above his career, and above his friends. And so should we. Can I have an Amen. There was a little boy one time and he went to his father. He said, Father, how much money do you make an hour? His father said, well, son, I make a lot per hour. Well, how much do you make an hour? Well, son, I, you know, I make good money. Well, I want to know how much an hour you make. Finally, the father said, well, I make $20 an hour. And he pulled $20 out of his pocket and said, can I borrow an hour of your time? God, help us. We need to put our, father, our, our sons and daughters first. Can I have an amen? But notice Jairus didn't seek the system of religion that he had been devoted to for her healing. They were... The very institution that he served, he abandoned. He did not seek help at the synagogue, but he sought help with Jesus. He had seen how that Jesus had healed the sick, how he caused the lame to walk, how he caused the blind to see, how he raised people from the dead. He's seen that in and around about the region. He knew that this, the dead religion that he served could not help. Jesus was his only hope. It's odd to me how that crisis has a way of changing the perspective of someone when they're faced with one. I was visiting one of our members some, a few years back in the hospital and they were there and we anointed them with oil and we prayed for them. There was a man that was his roommate on the other side and he said, hey, sir, could you come over here and pray and anoint me with oil? And I said, well, most certainly. He said, well, I go to a church and my pastor doesn't believe in that. And all of a sudden, I asked him, I began to get acquainted with him. I said, how long have you been going to that church? He said, for 20 years. And this man had been going to a church for 20 years that did not believe in the anointing of oil or they did not believe in divine healing, but he was willing to abandon what he believed because of crisis. Isn't it odd how that crisis sometimes awakens us to the reality of the importance of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't seek help, Jairus didn't seek help from the religious system the traditions, the systems, the formulism that he served for years would no longer suffice in the face of a present dilemma. He needed something real and he needed something alive. And can I tell you folks, people are looking for authenticity. They're looking for real men. Can I have an amen? They're looking for something that's real and alive. They're part of dead religion. We need something real in the house of the Lord. Can you say amen? Jerry has sought Jesus publicly. And this is where the Lord began to change my perspective. 
He was not ashamed because he ran and he fell at Jesus' feet, besought him in the midst of the crowd, right smack dab in the middle of the day. Unlike Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who was a ruler of the Jew, who's Jews, who was also a part of the Sanhedrin court, what did the Bible say? He came to Jesus at night, undetected, unnoticed, secretively, and concealed. He didn't want people to see him because he's afraid of losing his job, losing his career. He's afraid of losing his fame, his popularity. So he came to Jesus concealed and secretively. And even though it may have cost Jairus his position, his friends and his job, he may have been able to lose all of that, yet Jairus did not care. He was not ashamed to seek Jesus publicly. He was in crisis. However, Nicodemus, he only sought Jesus because he was curious. But I want to tell you, there's a difference in a man seeking God out of curiosity and a desperate man seeking God because of a crisis. And this man meant business. He needed to find Jesus. He needed Jesus' help. My prayer here this morning is give us fathers that will count the cost of discipleship, not care about fame, popularity, and get, and get desperate enough, not just seek Jesus out of curiosity, but seek him with their whole heart and their whole spirit and their mind and body and soul. I pray that we don't see him afar off, secretly, undetectively, and, dis- and, and, and d- disclosed, but we seek Jesus openly without fear or without intimidation. I pray that fathers will make public the confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. There's something that God spoke to me, and this is not the main thing that he spoke to me. We'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things that God spoke to me is he's looking for men that are not ashamed of who he is, men that will stand up in public and declare who God is. Don't be afraid to express themselves openly in front of everybody their love and their adoration of Jesus Christ. Those of you that are men here right now, would you not be ashamed and would you lift your hand and say, I love the Lord and praise him and magnify him and declare that you're a man that's not ashamed, that you're a Christian, that you're not ashamed, that you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your God, that he's your Savior, and he is worthy to be praised. Can I have an amen? I pray for fathers to live out their faith regardless of the cost. Be men of God. Be strong. Quit yourself like men and fight. When I look how that Jairus fell down at Jesus' feet and beseeched him to come to his house, it is here that the Lord spake to me and uh, it formed this whole sermon. This whole sermon was formed out of this thought. He gave me the thought before I even knew what text I would take. He gave me the thought and then I had to find the text that would fit it. And then he, brought, he took me to Jairus. And that's how this story or how this sermon evolved. I was sitting there and I'd been praying all week, God, I've preached for 30 years on Father's Day. I've preached everything that I know about fathers. Where's there a different father in scripture that I'd never seen before? Jairus came to my mind. I thought, yeah, you'd show me that before. Came to my mind again and yet I didn't see it. And then the Lord spoke to me and he said, there is a difference in a father taking a child to God than there is for him to bring God to the child. And I thought about that for a minute and I thought about it in this term. There's a difference in for a father to take their child to Jesus and there's a difference for a father to bring Jesus back to their child. And as I began to look at that, God began to explode in my mind what he wanted me to preach on. It is here that we notice that Jairus did not bring his daughter to Jesus but he beseeched Jesus to come where his daughter was at. 
For a father to take a child to Jesus, this speaks of discipleship. It speaks of training and teaching and developing and instructing and nurturing and guiding and mentoring and equipping. And no doubt this is the call of every father. How many know that we are called to disciple our children? Of course we are. We are to be the priest of the home. We're to train up the children in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our job. We could quote numerous scriptures concerning its importance to be disciplers and the command upon us to be spiritual leaders of the home. Scriptures like Psalms 127 verse four, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man or a mighty warrior, so are children of thy youth. In other words, the psalmist said, just as a warrior aims and shoots his arrow to hit a target, even so it's the responsibility of the father to aim and to point and to lead and to guide our children to the target of spirituality. And we gotta start while we're young because it's done from the children of our youth. I remember my pastor's mother, who was 90-some years old. We pulled up at church one Sunday. Benjamin was the only child we had. He was four or five months old, and we get him out of the car seat, and I start carrying him in, and she stopped me on the sidewalk, and she looked at me and Jenny. She pointed that little bony finger, a 90-year-old woman. She said, I want you to know you start now. You start prophesying over him, you start preaching over him, you start worshiping over him, you sing to him, you read the word of God to him, you pray over him. And she just started in and she sat there for all the hell on. She said, he's never too young. You start now. And I believe that. Proverbs 22 and 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians 6 and 4 says, and you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It's not good enough to instill good morals in the life of our children. It's not good enough to give them a good education and teach them work ethics. It's not good enough to teach them how to be polite and to respect our elders. It's not good enough to develop them in a trade so that they can survive. But we have to nurture them in spiritual matters in the ways of the Lord. But as important as all that is, Jairus did not take his daughter to Jesus in the representation of discipleship, but brought Jesus back to his daughter. And when I looked at that, no doubt, due to the infirmity, due to the sickness, due to the injury, whatever it was, whatever was the problem of this little lady, it kept her from traveling. He was not able, physically able, to bring her where she was at to where Jesus was at. And there are times, listen to me, parents, you gotta be wise. There are times that it's impossible to get your child to Jesus due to spiritual sickness, sin, strongholds, and other spiritual maladies that may hinder you in the spiritual realm. Even though we have to lead our children, teach them, train them, and do all of that to Jesus, sometimes their human sin nature, their fleshly carnal nature, and their rebellion and their own stubbornness keeps them from following or adhering to what we're teaching and what we're leading. I want you to know they are free moral agents and they do have a choice. And there doesn't matter how much you preach. It doesn't matter how much you talk to them. It doesn't matter how much you love them. Sometimes they are bound spiritually and you cannot disciple them and bring them into the presence of Jesus Christ. And this is where we have to bring Jesus back to them. The Lord spoke to me one word that is essential and absolutely necessary and extremely important for those that want to father children and father people into the kingdom of God. That word for you fathers on this Father's Day is presence. Say presence with me. I'm not talking about Christmas presents. I'm talking about presence, the presence of God. If there's one thing I have learned in 35 years of ministry, 
Do you cannot legislate righteousness. You can preach until you're blue in the face. You can discipline, but I want to tell you there's something I found out. You can't beat the devil out of your children and you can't beat God in them. Can I have an amen? You can scream, you can holler, you can yell, but you cannot force people to love Jesus. Can I tell you, you can touch, you can train, you can cry, you can beg, you can plead, you can guide, you can instruct, you can do all of that, but you cannot cause righteousness to happen in a person. It can't be done. If it could have been done, I would have beat, the only way to beat the devil out of your children when they're in that kind of a rebellious stage is kill them. Amen? I think Benjamin has received the blunt. When you get older, you get a little wiser. My thought was, if I beat him enough, I'll get that devil out of him. Amen? But the truth of the matter is, no matter how much you want your children to follow suit, adhere to what you teach, to adhere to what you preach, I want you to know you cannot force somebody to love Jesus Christ. Jarius needed Jesus to come to his house. And there's just something about presence that changes everything. Huh. I know how it captivated me. I know what it's like to be a rebellious teenager running from God. And I know what it's like to have presence haunting you. As important as discipleship is, and it is, I'm not taking away from that, without presence, it's all in vain. Doctrination is important, but it is not salvation. It was Mary Ruth Stone that said one time, she said, I know a lot of men that are as straight as a gum barrel, but they're just as empty as well. And I want to tell you, it's not good enough to be a good moral man. It's not good enough to have good morals. You've got to be a spiritual man. Can I have an amen? Somebody needs to clap on that one. We don't only have to be disciplinarians and teachers and instructors and leaders and fathers to our children. If you'll go in the scripture and see all the things that's demanded out of a father, there's no way that you and I can be perfect in that. We try to be. Just like when Paul said, you know, I even strive for perfection, but I'm not apprehended as of yet. If the apostle Paul didn't get perfection, man, I'm in trouble. And yet, no doubt about it, I'm gonna fail in some areas. There's gonna be some things I may not come completely perfect in. When I should be tender, I'm tough. When I should be tough, I'm tender. When I should be strict, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit loose. When I should be loose, I'm a little bit strict. How many's ever found yourself fighting that in parenthood? Come on, somebody help me preach. I'm not the only idiot around here, am I? <laughs> Struggling about how to do all this. But there's one thing that I have found out that God has not commanded me to be perfect in that. I just got to strive to do my best. And quit beating up on fathers that don't match the mark in every single thing that they're a little bit weak in. But there's one thing that makes up for our failure, or I shouldn't say failure, I should say weakness. And that is presence. Huh. The presence of God that inhouses us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Can I have an Amen. And there's just something about the presence of God on a man or a woman that changes things. Can I have an amen? Presence. You remember Ezekiel? They just sung about it. Man, I loved it. I about come unglued over there when they got to singing that song. But you remember Ezekiel stood in Ezekiel chapter 37? 
before the valley of dry bones and they were bleached white bones in the Bible. In other words, the Hebrew word meant that these bones were completely gone of sinew and tissue and flesh. They had been bleached. They had been out in the sun for years and years and years and years. They were decaying. They were beginning to crack. They were beginning to rot. They were weak. There was nothing about, and these bones were scattered. Ezekiel comes up there. God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And he said, well, Lord, thou knowest the good answer because I want to tell you something. When God asks you a question, you better use wisdom. Only you know, God. I don't know. Can they live again? And he asked Ezekiel again, can these bones live? He said, only you know that, Lord. And, and these bones are scattered from one end to the other. And that was symbolic of Israel being scattered to the four corners of the earth. And all of a sudden, he says, well, I want you to do something, Ezekiel. I want you to prophesy, come on, to the bones. I want you to say, bones have sinew, bones have flesh. And he begins to tell him what to prophesy. And Ezekiel looks at that valley of dry bones. Now, before I get there, can you imagine Ezekiel is the great prophet and he's probably saying, where's my church? And he comes to the valley of dry bones and God says, here's your church. It's dead in a doornail. There's no life in it. So it's now up to this prophet to bring life to his congregation, which is nothing but a, a bunch of bleached dry bones. People that have been scattered and people that are dead and bones are all over that valley where there was a war and they were just left there. So Ezekiel begins to prophesy to those bones. And when he did, there came a rattling, the Bible says. And all of a sudden, things begin to happen and those bones begin to dance across the sand of that old desert. Toe bone went to foot bone, foot bone went to ankle bone, ankle bone went to shin bone, shin bone went to knee bone, knee bone went to thigh bone, thigh bone went to hip bone, and it just kept on until boom, there was a skeleton. There was a form of a man. And then all of a sudden, sinew and tissue and muscle begin to form around that body. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel looks up and there's a bunch of dead people everywhere that looked perfect. They had skin, they had muscle, they had hair. Everything about them had been regenerated. They had been new. But they laid, they were lifeless. Just like when Adam was created by God. How did God create Adam? He took dust from the earth and he formed a body and he put it down and there was that corpse laying there. It was just a corpse. Looked good, looked pretty. You know, there was some Hollywood look to them because they kind of looked probably something like me. Beautiful people. But I want to tell you, no matter how much muscle they had, no much matter how much sinew they had, no much, no much what, kind of, what kind of work had been done, though they were placed together, yet they were lifeless. And then God says, now it's time to prophesy to the wind. The wind is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic of life. It's symbolic of breath. Prophesying. The word is symbolic of discipleship. Discipleship brought a structure together. Discipleship formed a person. It helped form who he is. Come on, somebody help me. It gave him an identity as a man. But I want to tell you something. It wasn't until he prophesied to that wind 
And the Holy Ghost moved over those men and breathed in them the breath of life like God did in the Garden of Eden to Adam. Breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and then man caught up as a living soul. That day a whole army got up, an exceedingly great army for Israel. If all you have is discipleship, all you'll get is structure, dead religion. But you have to have the spirit in order to have life. Amen? If we, live the spiritual, if we leave the spiritual life out, we'll, we as fathers are gonna fail. No matter how good morally we are, we gotta have spirit. We have to be spiritual people. We have to house the presence of God. We have to be real. We have to be authentic. We not only need to instruct them in truth, our children, but we have to have the anointing that breaks the yoke sin off of their back. They're bound. You know, so many times we look out and we see all these people that are on skid row and they live on the streets and we say, oh, they're so bound. And yet we got children that get up every morning, dress, go to school, have normal lives that are just as bound and we don't see it. They're just as lost in sin as the next guy is. Amen? And we've taught and we've trained and we've cried and we've wept and we've done all that stuff and we need to. But what they need is a touch of presence. They need a touch and an experience and an encounter with the presence of God. Amen. Our children don't only need a father that speaks truth, but he needs a father that manifests the presence of God in his life. It is said a child is not likely to find a father in God unless it finds something of God within that father. And how true that is. We may not have the ability to usher our children into the presence of God through discipleship. Their own sin nature may stop us. Their own spiritual maladies may hinder us. But we have the ability to usher the presence of God into our children. If there's one thing that I have found out in my life, I always thought that if I taught it hard enough, preached it hard enough, spoke it loud enough, and spoken it often enough that it would form my children into righteous living. And it wasn't until this man got to understanding something that what was more important than my words was my life. Come on. They needed a daddy that they could feel the presence of God off of. They needed presence in their home. They needed a father that had a relationship with Jesus Christ like a Moses did on top of the mountain when he come down. He had the radiant glow of the glory of God. Can I have an amen? And we need fathers to understand. You can sometimes come short in discipleship and get by with that, but you can't come short with presence and get by with it. You gotta have presence. Can I have an amen? We have the ability to carry Jesus back into our homes with us. Our child may be that child that is rebellious. He's got a sin nature that is just captivated by the enemy. He's deceived and he's, he's, he's sitting there bound up, locked up and he's been influenced by the kids at school and by the different influences of his life and he may even be flirting around with drugs that we don't know anything about. He may be floating around with alcohol, maybe premarital sex that we don't even know anything about, and yet he's bound and he's, he likes that kind of a lifestyle. He likes the thrill of the pleasures of life. And you're preaching and it's just going through one ear and out the other. You're loving, but it has to no effect. But there's one thing for sure. You will make him squirm when you go get Jesus and bring Jesus back in the room with you. 
all of a sudden presence begins to drive away darkness. All of a sudden presence begins to bring light and conviction. All of a sudden presence begins to take away the oppression that sits there because it's the anointing of God. It's the presence of God that breaks the yoke over them. You don't have to say a word. You can just walk in the room and the countenance of the glorious gladiance of God's presence upon you begins to change the atmosphere of that whole place and all of a sudden the child who had no interest is being shaken to his core because he's come into the contact with the presence of God. Amen. I remember when Benjamin was a little bitty boy. I don't know how old he was, a couple years old. And I don't know why I had him. I guess usually when I had him in church is because he's always in trouble. Mama could handle him for a while when it was just no more. He was a tyrant. That boy was. Everybody talks about, oh, look at that pretty little boy. Look at that pretty. There ain't nothing pretty about them. They're tyrants when they're born. They got a sin nature. They're born into sin. And they got to be born again. Have you ever heard of the terrible twos? Well, I'll tell you what, Ben, it was the terrible two, three, four, five. I'm picking on him a little bit. He actually is a good kid, but just, man. You know what I don't like about Ben? He reminds me of who I am. Sometimes we don't like our children because they expose who we are. But nevertheless, when Ben was little, he was in a church service. I don't know why I had him, but I had him. And it became one of those Pentecostal services. Things were happening, man. I had him hold of me and all of a sudden my pastor went by and put his hands on my head and when he did, I took off dancing. I couldn't have stopped. My feet were like rubber and they were just, I was just dancing all over the place. And that little boy was in my hands. And I'd stop. I was weeping and I was crying and here come a woman to try to take that baby out of my hands. As soon as she'd reach out for him, boom, the Spirit of the Lord would hit me again and here I'd go. I'd get done, here come another woman to take that child away, boom, the Lord hit me, here I go. Benjamin's just over there. <laughs> He's enjoying the ride of his life. And man, I danced, and I've never had an experience since like that. And I, I don't know how long I danced. And I get almost done. Here come another lady. You know, they were afraid that boy's going to get hurt, I guess. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said, do not let anyone take this child from you because what is happening right now is conducive. He's feeling my presence. I'm molding this boy. And it was presence that began to mold that boy's life. It wasn't strict rules. It wasn't a, not saying that we don't need strict rules. I'm not preaching against that. It wasn't the belt that formed his life. It was the presence of God that began to form that boy's life. Can I have an amen? I'm reminded of Dennis Witter when they were in college in Lee University. He said they go out and do things they shouldn't like most kids done. And he said we always dreaded certain hour because they'd all walk in, they'd all sit down and the professor would pass out the papers and he'd start walking and he'd come up to one of them, put his hands upon the shoulder of one of them and he'd just start saying, you know, there are sometimes that people make mistakes and they do things. He said, I knew a boy one time and he'd just start telling their lives of what they'd been doing. 
He'd go to the next one, put their hands on them, and before long they were all crying, and before long the whole class was repenting of what they'd done that night before. And that went on throughout that whole year. And finally, at the end of the year, it had come to the point that the professor had changed their lives because they were afraid to go out and do anything wrong because the professor would surely know it. He just knew how to read their mail. Sometimes he would not even have to say a word. He said, I got to analyzing it. He said, we would be sitting there and all of a sudden, he said, we would tell off on ourselves. He'd just come in the room. He'd just start looking at you and all of a sudden, yeah, I know I shouldn't have been there. He said, all of a sudden, you just start spurting it out. He said, the man didn't have to say a word to us. He said, at the end of the year, we finally said, Professor, we got to ask you a question. How did you know that we'd done a lot of those things that we'd done? He said, well, and he said, why is it that we come in and tote off on ourselves? We just start blurting it. And he rolled up his britches legs and put his foot up on a chair. He pointed to his knees and he had calluses about that thick on his knees. And he says, I pray over you. And it's all about presence. The presence of God in his life. The presence of God that come upon him. Now I'm not gonna go through the whole sermon because I don't have the time. But I wanna tell you something, folks. We need presence. We need presence like we have never seen it before. Because it's the presence of God that changes things. It's the presence of God that moves things out of order. And listen to me. It is the presence of God that softens the heart of the child to where they can begin to obey the word that you're teaching them and instructing them. Can I have an amen? The third thing we see about this man by the name of Jarius is that he was a worshiper because Matthew chapter nine in his account, he said, and Jairus came and worshiped God. When you look at the statistics of the church called fervent radical worship, it says 86% of fervent radical worship come from women. Most everybody that testifies about a powerhouse in the church where someone laid their hands upon them and they were healed or they were delivered or they were touched, it always come by the hand of a woman. When they talk about the prayer meetings of the church, it's always them women back there are stirring up the spirit realm. Oh, Grandma Blue and Aunt Sis, and they're, they're always, it's always related to, to a woman. Radical women that would get up and shout and dance and scream and give yells of, of victory marches. It's because they seen things happen and they would respond to the glory of God. They said most of the time it was always women that was always brought to what we call the arena of the heroes of the faith. They say more women have built churches than men. Amen? It used to be a statistic that most churches were 70% to 80% female and 30 to 20% male. Why is that? Because man is a little bit prideful. They say as a whole that man is a little bit reserved in his worship. He's more like the guy like Nicodemus approach where he kind of wants to do it concealed and quietly and in his own way. He kind of wants a smorgasbord kind of religion where he can sit down and when no one's really looking, he can lift his hand, I love you, Lord. That's how he shows his expression. But oh, Jarius, he came and openly, publicly worshiped and began to scream out and be sought. And when you study the scripture, he was crying out with a loud voice. He was not ashamed. And there was something about that that God spoke to me. 
He said, I'm looking for the day that men will stand up and be radical in their worship because it is the worship that's a gateway to the presence of God. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's in the midst. God inhabits the praises of his people. Come on, somebody help me preach. And, and he was a worshiper. I remember when we went to China, man Randy can testify this better than anybody because of the encounter that he had with God. Little old lady couldn't read or write, but she could preach the paint off the walls. Had no education. They would come and get her. There was a village that was tormented by a man that had a demon and he'd run through the village and he would hurt people and he would rob from them and steal from them and he would, you know, even kill people. And they were scared of him and they sent for this little lady. That's what her job was. That's what she was noted for. And she went to this little village and she said, and, and when, she, when the demonic heard that she was coming, he ran and hid. And she said, God, show me where he's at. And the Lord showed her where he was at. You remember that, Randy? And then the Lord told her to get two men to go out and tell him that the prophet summons him. They go out and said, Sister so-and-so summons you. He got up trembling and he came to her. And when he did, she just looked at him and in the name of Jesus, she laid hands upon him and cast those demons out of that man. Powerful woman. She preached and she couldn't read but she'd take the Bible and she could read it fluently and she just preached upon Jesus. She preached about the hands of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus, the eyes of Jesus. Just a simple basic message. And you know on the, in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit fell and the furniture began to rattle and go across the floor, that's exactly what happened. In a public place, we were hid underground in a public mall in a little room upstairs because they never would look for you to be openly in that kind of an area, and that's how they were doing it. And we were hit out there, and all of a sudden, when she got done preaching, I want to tell you, the furniture began to rattle and jump across the floor, and all of a sudden, 100% of us, not 99.9, 100% of us fell flat, flat on our faces, weeping before the Lord, and we'd done it for I don't know how long. And all of a sudden, they said, we got to get up and we got to move because, the, you know, we'll get exposed here as being under the underground church. It's against the law to have church there. And so they were getting us up, and we had to help Randy up, and Randy could not speak for three days. Three solid days that man could not even talk. The best three days of my life. <laughs> he just sat there and weep and cry and shake under the power of God for three solid days. People, it changed their life. You know what it was? It was presence. It was the presence of God. Jesus comes back to where he's at and here's Jairus representing Jesus. You take over, Lord. When's men gonna learn to let Jesus' presence take over in the house? You know, quit yelling, screaming, fighting and fussing. Let Jesus' presence make a change. Jesus just walks in and they're crying. They're making it ado because the girl's dead. He said, hey, quit crying. She's not dead. She's alive. She's just asleep. And they laughed him to scorn. So you know what he done? Everybody out of the house. Everybody but Peter, James, and John, and the mother and the father. Everybody else out of this house. They get hurt out of it. Everybody else out of the house. And that's what the anointing does. The hindrances, the obstacles, the hurdles, the strongholds, the demonic spirit of doubt, the demonic spirits of rebellion that's there 
that they were not spiritual people. They were not in tune to the spirit. The presence of God drove them out that resurrection could happen. It was the presence of God that was able now for the first time for that daughter to hear the command of a father. And Jesus stood there and said, damsel, I say arise. And the Bible says she got up and she arose. Can I have an amen? Now I need some fathers that's not ashamed here today to walk down this aisle and be a radical worship of Jesus Christ and to say I'm making public my confession of faith. I am here to lift my hands. If need be, if the Spirit of God move upon me, I'm willing to cry, I'm willing to dance, I'm willing to do whatever I gotta do, but I gotta have presence in my life to make a difference in my home, and if I'm gonna father people into the kingdom of God, whether it be my children or other children or somebody else's children, I've got to have presence. Would you stand with me, please?